0: This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower's School, offering a Cuba agroecology tour in the summer of 2021. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugar cane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the US.
1: They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them.
2: I like to think of the food that we eat as archeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market.
0: It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today it is my very great pleasure to welcome Mark Bittman to the show. Uh, Mark is the author of 30 books, including the How to Cook Everything series, And the number one New York Times bestseller, VB6, Eat Vegan Before 6 p.m. to Lose Weight and Restore Your Health for Good. He was a food journalist and columnist, opinion columnist, and the lead magazine food writer at the New York Times, where he started writing in 1984 and stayed for 30 years. Bittman is currently special advisor on food policy at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and the editor-in-chief of the Bittman Project. His newest book, Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicide, was just published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can buy it now at your favorite bookstore or on, dare I say, at Amazon. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you with me.
2: Thank you, Katie. Great to be here.
1: So let's start with what prompted you to write a book of such magnitude and sweep because quite honestly encyclopedic barely covers it as an adjective. You took on a huge subject here and somehow you dispatched it in a mere 300 pages. What what inspired you?
2: I think the mere 300 I mean you're scaring me so I want to <laughs> emphasize the mere 300 pages. You know um could it could it be that it's a personality thing? Because I did write how to cook everything. I don't know. But <laughs> I like big topics, and I feel like well, food is obviously my world. Um we take food for granted. We people take food for granted. Maybe not so much the getting of it, but um we don't often consider its import and and yet at every single stage of history, food has played a critical role. And that's, that may be self-evident, but it's not something we give a lot of thought to. And I know that that's true because there's a lot of stuff in this book that I didn't know two years ago, three years ago. And I know that I know more than most people about food. So Mm -hmm. I think there's surprises in here for everyone. And, um, and i think the the big message which is that food is critically important to everything that happens is um, is worth considering
1: absolutely well wh- you know you you do a, a huge sweep of agric- you know the true history of agriculture and i'll let people read the book for that um, but there were a couple of statements that you make sort of towards the beginning of the book that really struck me and that have kind of set us up for where we are now. And they go back to the 17th century philosopher René Descartes, who you describe him coming up with sort of two concepts that have ultimately uh, defined how we feed populations. The first concept being uh, the idea of the sentient being versus extended beings. And, And So I'm going to ask you to um, to define those terms, and then also explain why that division is has been so uh, has had such an impact on our current systems of industrial and scientific thinking.
2: You know, it's funny because I mean I'm hardly a Cartesian scholar, um, and a lot of this was new to me. Also, I mean I studied it in. High school and I studied in college and read about it casually, but had to do a lot more work here. The notion of two kinds of two kinds of existers, the sentient and other extended. Yeah. Is especially weird when you consider that Descartes quite bluntly thinks that sentient people basically mean upper class white men. It's not even white men. It's like you, it's ruling class white. It's just like him and his buddies, basically. Yeah. That's who are the cream of the crop. And everything else, and this means less educated, less wealthy white men. This means all women. This means everybody of any race other than white is effectively the same as a rock or a duck. So um, that's pretty blunt. You know, that's like beyond racism. (laughs) That is really pretty blunt. And um, Descartes, for example, believed that animals were effectively machines that could make noise. Um, And by extension, that's how he felt about women, people of color, uh, less well-educated white men, every, you know, really everybody in the world, as I said, except for him and his buddies. So this sort of level of, what came to be called reductionism, of, of saying um, uh, that the whole can be represented by the sum, perfectly represented by the sum of its parts, and that um, there was very little mystery in the world and very little to explain. This kind of thinking, and it's not just Descartes, but this kind of like thinking led to an era in which science was often represented as the ability to boil things down to their essence. So and to bring this home uh to the you know to the food conversation really it had a huge impact on agriculture because it was determined quote unquote because it was determined incorrectly that the that soil was really dirt plus um Potassium nitrogen and phosphorus, that if you had those nutrients, that soil was a good growing medium, um, and you still see that kind of thinking today, of course. And similarly, that nutrition boils down to fats, carbohydrates, and protein with a few assorted micronutrients that you can't deny the existence of but 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 the point is that that all mystery is gone, and all complexity is gone it's as, as as if everything is as simple as a bicycle um everything can be distilled into its component parts and we know that not to be true but not only that we know that to be a damaging way of thinking to take the to take the mystery and the wonder out of everything to take the complexity out of everything leaves us with a world where we think we're in control and we're not so that's you know, that's not a food statement, and, that, and that's a, an interesting place for me to get to from my studies in, in the writing of this book. But that, that is the truth, that the science of the 17th and 18th, and for that matter, much of the 19th and 20th centuries, that says we can understand nature perfectly, we can control it, we are in charge— this is all incorrect. It's, it's much bigger than that and much more mysterious than that. And until we gain some kind of humility, right, to understand that, of course, we want to do what we can to make our lives good for ourselves and hopefully for others, um, we're not in control. And we have to start to see that, that, that um, if you're going to fight nature with economics, Economics is going to lose. Nature is always going to
1: win. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can see that just to bring this home for the, you know, from the point of view of agriculture, like the crisis in soil today because of our habits of monocropping. Um, and depleting these vast swaths of, you know, the Great Plains and Iowa, for example, or, you know, the Corn Belt, all of that stuff. You know, that kind of reductive thinking that goes all the way back to Descartes has effectively, you know, caused one Dust Bowl and is, you know, potentially going to cause another one. I, I just thought that was an incredible circle that you made in terms of thinking like that this really archaic um, thought process that goes back three centuries is essentially still the underpinnings of current agricultural models. I, I was just fascinated by that. I couldn't stop thinking about it.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of what we think that, you know, let me say, I'll just say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to ramble on, but let me just say one thing.
1: That's why you're we here. We do
2: understand. It's hard, it's hard to go back in history and say, oh, those dumb people they should have known blah, blah, blah. They should have known that stripping the, the dirt from the plains, the soil from the plains that took thousands and thousands of years to put there would lead to a dust bowl. Okay, they didn't. But the, right. the thing is that right now, we 21st century people, we understand things much, much better in some ways than anyone ever has. And it's now, ignorance was an excuse for a long time about, about many of the things that we've done. Many things that we feel badly about, we might feel guilty about or sad about, mm-hmm. we know why those things happened, and we know that they don't have to happen again, and we know how to make things better. So ignorance, my, my favorite saying is ignorance is no longer an excuse. Mm-hmm. We have the knowledge that we need in order to make things better. We need the political will to get there.
1: Right, right. And then there was another thing that struck me, because um, you mentioned the um, the early you know economist Thomas Malthus, who had so much to do with um, developing seed and and you know theories of agriculture and economy and so forth. Um, and and one of the things that he promoted and which you still hear to this day, especially in the meat industry, is that we must feed the world. And if we're not feeding the world, then we're, you know, we're not somehow we're failing in some special job that we have been given. I don't know why. Um, but, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that that type of thinking uh, and and the sort of um, the concurrent thinking about f- the free market economy and and raising to the maximum and all of that stuff Um Th- those are two two thoughts that also have a tremendous impact on our current political thinking around agricultural policy. And I wondered if you could expand a little bit on that, on how, you know, free market economy, capitalism and so forth, um, you know, dovetails with that feed the world uh, myth.
2: Yeah. Whenever you hear the how are we going to feed the 10 billion question, you know, you're being set up for a push by industrial agriculture. Absolutely. It's just a clear sign. Um what happened again in the 17th 18th centuries even beginning a little bit before but what happened was crops agricultural crops went from a place where we were people were growing food to feed themselves their neighbors their families their village their town their region those crops were traded and they were sold but but they were thought of as food they were thought of and what happened um when monoculture began the planting of more of basically one crop over larger, um, larger fields. And of course, this was, um, this was expanded with the invention of the plow, but, but really expanded with the invention of the tractor, which allowed you to clear hundreds of acres at a time and, and to do in a day what used to take a month and so on. Um, what happened was that crops began to be grown in order to be sold. So there wasn't a question of how much wheat do we need to grow in this area in order to have enough bread for us. It was really just a question of how much wheat can I grow because I'm going to get paid more to grow wheat than I am to grow anything else, and then I'll sell it and I'll worry about how to get my food to eat elsewhere. And wheat was the wheat was really, in the West at least, the first um, – and most important, cash crop, but it was followed uh, by corn, and, it, and corn has been followed, not followed, but, but augmented by soybeans. But those, in a way, are the big three, and there are others, cash crops. And what happens now is that most farming in the West, that is in the industrialized countries, most farming is the farming of one crop at a time on, over huge fields, using machinery and chemicals and uh, chemical fertilizer to grow that one crop, sell it for as much money as as possible, make as much money as possible, and not think about the consequences of that, i.e., or that is, what if these 3,000 acres of land were growing food for my town? What if these 12 million acres or whatever it is Uh, of land in Iowa that are growing corn, we're growing food for the United States of America. Those are big questions because if you're just growing stuff to sell it, you don't really care about the consequences so much. Whereas if you're growing stuff to feed other people, you might be saying, well, I wonder if we could do this with less pesticides. I wonder if we could grow varieties that taste better. I wonder if we could grow varieties that are more nutritious. I wonder if we could grow varieties that are more needed in this other part of our, our region. Whatever. We don't right. do that. We don't have a food system that says, how can we grow food that's affordable and fair and green and nutritious? We have a food system that says, how can we grow crops that are profitable?
1: Right. And then, of course, you end up with um, gluts of various products. And I mean, I'm not going to get into the weeds of like commodities trading and futures and all of that stuff, which you go into to a certain extent in the book. But those that that aspect of capitalism, uh, you know, combined with. growing, you know, cash crops has led to a great deal of distress in the farming community around the world, not just in the United States, but certainly, especially in the United States, where corn prices are fluctuate wildly, um, you know, to the great detriment of anybody who is engaged either in growing corn or growing livestock, for example. But um, part of that whole push towards growing to sell is uh, is is part of the history of colonialism as well. And I, I again, I don't want to get caught up too long in that, but it's such an important aspect of why f- the food industry is what it is, or you know, these sort of trading and marketing cash crops, what that has done in terms of how other regions and other nations uh, have altered their own agricultural practices. Um, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how that colonial, that the beginnings of that in the colonial era, has really driven famine uh, across the world over the last two centuries, during which time you know various countries were busily invading others and taking over their um, taking over their governments essentially. So I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, flesh that out a bit.
2: It, it's you know, it's not a coincidence that. Uh, the Europeans wound up conquering much of the world. Uh, it's um, It takes a lot more land to feed people who have an animal product-heavy diet than it takes to feed people who have a plant-heavy diet. And so um, it's, it's not as if Asians, Chinese especially, had no means of navigating the world, or of uh, colonizing if they wanted to. The Chinese had huge armies, and the Chinese had already, before before Columbus sailed to what became America, um, the Chinese had sailed to Africa, which is a much longer journey. Um, but the Chinese didn't need land because the Chinese had adequate land to feed their people. and um, And that was in large part because they mostly fed their people grains and vegetables. Europeans increasingly, especially after the plague, increasingly were chasing peasants off the land and using land that had been used to grow food for people to grow food for animals or to graze animals because animals were worth more money to, the, to their owners than vegetables or plants were. And the owners were, in this case, nobility, Um, the farmers were peasants. So as peasants were chased off the land, and that land was used increasingly for livestock, there was a bit of a problem there, which was that the peasant population was growing, and yet peasants weren't able to grow as much food as they had been able to grow for themselves and for their villages and so on, as they had been able to grow before. So... In a way, and I don't know that this was ever verbalized, but in a way it was imperative for the Europeans to go find, these were also relatively small countries. They were bound by political borders or by the ocean. We're talking about Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, France, and England for the most part. Um, These were countries that needed new land to farm. And one can only imagine their delight and shock when they came to what they thought of as the new world and found not only wealth beyond belief, but um, almost infinite soil and water, good soil and water. And the rest of this is the sad story of the genocide of indigenous people on this side of the Atlantic um, and the taking over of North and South America by Mostly by Europeans. So if you want me to continue, I no, can no. do that. It's a I long mean, story. But it's
1: a long story. I mean, I, I want to keep moving because as you say, we could get bogged down in the history here. And I, I do want to definitely get to the to the solutions part of this, but I, I do want people to understand that there's you know, there's a lot to unpack in how we got to the place that we are now. So um, I want to push along here and talk about a little bit about the industrialization, like when the tractor, you know, be, became king and people were able to plow huge amounts of land and and you know plant them, et cetera. and the and the development of the USDA, um, I've forgotten exactly what year the USDA was established in. I don't think it was called that then. Um, but you you state that essentially the USDA determined that the policies it would promote would be primarily for the benefit of industry. And that maximum extraction was the number one priority with the well-being of actual farmers and the well-being of the actual terroir as it were being kind of an incidental second so let's let's get a little thumbnail of the of the history of the USDA uh, from that point of view
2: well it was founded by Lincoln so eighteen sixty two or so um, and Lincoln called it the People's Department but Lincoln didn't live very long, as we know. So, um, it's not coincidental entirely that USDA was founded at at the same time as two other things, as two other things happened in the U.S. that had a tremendous impact on agriculture and on our later lives. One was the Homestead Act, and in a way, Homestead Act is the determining a determining feature of the United States. And then the other was the the establishment of the land-grant colleges, which worked with USDA. I mean, that it that's everything from Cornell to Berkeley, um, everything that you think of it as an ag school or having part of an ag school. Um, those colleges worked as the research arms of the USDA and they worked uh, to better agriculture. Sadly, what bettering agriculture meant was the kind of agriculture that we were talking about a few minutes ago, monoculture, agriculture for profit. That's in part because the U.S., in large part because the U.S. was being driven by people who wanted to see a big, booming national economy based on trade and profit. Um, I want to spend a minute on the Homestead Act just because, you know, it's seen as a kind of lovely, benign... Um, I mean, generally seen as a kind of lovely benign granting of the land of the United States to its citizens. But of course, what happened then was first, that land had to be appropriated, that is stolen from indigenous people. So the land wasn't the government's to give away to begin with. But it's hard to say, but even beyond that, because in a way that's horrifying enough, but even even beyond that, as if that weren't horrifying enough, the land was given almost exclusively to white European males. So this was the the foundation of the wealth of the United States is in its land. And the fact that this land has a, a great deal of, a great deal of this land has rich soil, abundant sunshine, plenty of water, and so on. It's really good farmland. And that really good farmland was first stolen from indigenous people and then given to white males. Um, Some of it was promised to uh, formerly enslaved people. That promise was reneged on. A little of it was given to non-white males. A little of it was given to women. But it's safe to say that 90 or 95 percent of it was given to white males. And that's the foundation of wealth in the 20th century is that land. That land became valuable. What was grown on that land, um, of course, was valuable and was useful. And that's where 20th century wealth came from to a large extent. So um, this was an agricultural nation, but it wasn't an agricultural nation that really ever benefited Small farmers, because as soon as that land was given to those white men, those people were being trained by the USDA and by those ag schools, those agricultural colleges, to grow according to a formula. And that formula was let's turn this farmland into kind of a factory. And as our factories are producing widgets, Let's let the land produce the the agricultural equivalent of widgets, not things that are particularly useful for people, but things that are useful for trade and profit.
1: Right, right. I mean, that that whole story is just so remarkable. Um, I I wanted to talk for a second about. black and indigenous uh, and people of color farmers who were excluded from social security. As you mentioned, just, uh, just prior to this, uh, you know, a minute ago, you'd mentioned that they, a little bit of that homestead or a little bit of that land ended up with uh with black people, but or I mean, I guess that's it. I mean, it certainly wasn't anybody else. I mean, Native Americans were certainly not included in mm-hmm. any land grants. No. They
2: weren't <laughs> citizens.
1: You know, you so, had to
2: be a citizen, so that obviously right. excluded slaves. And um, yep, yeah.
1: Anyway, but I, I, I'm going to move forward actually because I want um, I want I want to talk a little bit about how they. Black and Indigenous people of color, et cetera, were also excluded from Social Security and from the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which had a big impact on the Great Migration. And I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the sort of injustice of that and and what you think of the most recent legislation that was introduced by Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker uh, to try to make some sort of effort at reparations towards uh, Black and people, you know, the BIPOC block, as it were, I don't mean to be dismissive, but it's easier than saying all those words. Um, you know, whether you think that that is going to have an impact on how those communities, uh, are able to re-engage with land that they were essentially deprived of or driven off of, uh, in the previous century.
2: Um, well, let's talk about that. I think, um, I don't know how many years it's been since Ta Nehisi Coates wrote his reparations piece, but but people did not talk about reparations much before that. But it is gaining steam. And when you're talking about reparations in the United States, you can of course talk about. Uh, you can talk about it any way you want to. You can talk about cash payments for the descendants of enslaved people. You can talk about. Um, basically any kind of reparations you want, but what's one of the things that's appropriate here, and this is what Booker's bill is beginning to address is land reform is the acknowledgement that land was given away in an, first it was stolen in an unfair way. And so you have to make whole indigenous people. You have to somehow do reparations for indigenous people. And that doesn't mean limiting them to reservations, but second, Uh, When it was given away, it was given away unfairly. And I think one of the things that people forget or may not be aware of is that the Africans who were forcibly brought to the United States built a lot, were responsible for building a lot of the wealth of the 20th century, a lot of the wealth that made the United States the most powerful, the richest country in the world came from black americans for, enslaved and formerly enslaved people and the, we're not talking about 100,000 people here we're talking about millions and millions of people we're talking about the second in the 19th century the second largest group in the population were slaves and then former former slaves and um these are, it, it it's just it's it, It's If the shoe were on the other foot, well, it couldn't be, but the the need for reparations, the need to make this right is a crying need, and it is in a way our, and this is not an original thought to me, this is our original sin. This is the original sin of white people in the United States, is the fact that our ancestors or the ancestors of some of us brought Africans here against their will and enslaved them and built the most powerful country in the world, doing so without sharing that wealth with those people. So, you know, I don't, I, I can't be a spokesperson for African Americans, but I can recognize that injustice. And a lot of that injustice is around agriculture. Land is wealth, agriculture creates wealth. And to the extent that anyone was deprived of one of the greatest distributions of land in history, that needs to, there needs to be compensation for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break right now and uh, we'll be right back with Mark Bittman. Um, So please stay with us. Uh, We'll be talking about some of the solutions he proposes in his new book, Animal Vegetable Junk. Stay tuned.
0: This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a Cuba agroecology tour in the summer of 2021. Agroecology is the study of ecological systems as they apply to agriculture. Join Organic Grower School on their tour of Cuba this summer to learn more firsthand. During this trip, you'll participate in and observe how the Cuban agricultural community has fully embraced agroecology. You'll learn why Cuba is considered one of the leading global experts in agroecological methods. What's included in the Cuba Agroecology Tour? The nine-day itinerary includes lodging, transportation around the island, and two to three meals per day. You'll be led by a professional tour guide with agricultural experience through Havana, Vinales Valley, and the Las Terrazas Biosphere Reserve. Scholarships covering up to 75% of the trip are available, with farmers being prioritized. Learn more at org. To go back, to go
1: back, dive back into this, um, you know... One of the other things, you know, we were talking in the first half of the show about how when they say, Oh, how are we gonna feed the world, you know, when we get to the fifth, you know, 10, 10, 9, 10 billion people or whatever it's supposed to be by 2050. Um, the other thing that's really struck me in your conversation about, you know, that sort of imperative, which we've been laboring under for several centuries now, um, was was how that concept also wound up being a tremendous influence in our foreign policy right up to today. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit, because I found that fascinating.
2: You know, that's the story of the Green Revolution. And again, it's funny. um, I don't, it's hard to know what people's intentions were. Sometimes people are well intentioned and the results are terrible. I guess we've all experienced that in our own lives. But looking back, you can see that the results were terrible and you can say, well, how can we intend to make this better? But the Green Revolution, regardless of its intent, wound up being basically a marketing ploy for American uh, agricultural equipment, chemicals, seeds, and so on. and, And kind of an imperialist venture that said, if we can get farmers in the rest of the world to farm the way we're farming, they're gonna to have to buy stuff from us. And within them buying stuff from us, we're going to be making even more money. And that that's kind of the story of the green the green revolution. That hot on the heels of that were, were trade deals like NAFTA, which basically said, um, if you want to be a part of the international community, or in this case of the North American economic community, then you have to be able, we have to be able to f- trade freely. And what free trade means when you're the bigger country is that you're going to be able to sell lots and lots of goods <laughs> to smaller countries at great cost to them, and especially at great cost to their agriculture. So if the United States can produce uh, corn at 100 times the rate, if farmers in the United States can produce corn at 100 times the rate that Mexican peasants can, then according to this theory and according to what happened in reality, there's little reason for Mexican peasants to produce corn because it can be sold more cheap. The corn that's sold in the United States produced in the United States can be sold more cheaply than that's that produced in Mexico. So the result of NAFTA was that farmers lost their farms, their their work and their farms. And uh, not coincidentally, the quality of corn went down, the quality of imported corn went down. And Mexico's diet, to a large extent, went from being a traditional and rather healthy diet based on corn and beans and squash and greens and tomatoes and the like, to one based on, Uh, prefabricated tortillas, pork, and Coca-Cola. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but Mexico is one of the largest consumers in the world of sodas and and not coincidentally one of the countries with the highest rates of obesity in the world. That is all pretty much thanks to NAFTA.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there there have been, uh, obviously, uh, you know, I think uh, these trade deals... uh, also include uh, quite a bit of sort of pressure and leverage uh, on other governments like if you want us to sell you at you know at a favorable rate then you have to agree to do X y and z that we want um, that was kind of the the message that I got from reading that section of the book. It was I it hadn't been so starkly laid out for me in the past, but boy, it really rang true. Um, I wanna do keep moving though here because obviously I could go on forever. Um, but you know, six years ago, you, uh Ricardo Salvador, who's I gotta tell you, one of my total heroes and Absolutely, hands down, the best guest I have ever had in eleven years of doing this podcast. I'm not kidding. Um, and so, you guys, Olivier De who had been at the FAO at the UN, and Michael Pollan wrote something called a National Food Policy for the 21st Century, which was kind of a manifesto of what is needed to change the way we produce food in this country um, uh, in, on, on many, many levels, not just from the soil up level, but also from the point of view of marketing, from the point of view of, you know, where we sell what, um, what regions grow what and so forth. And I wondered if you um, had any thoughts Um, as you, I'm sure it was part of what informed your interest in writing this book, but also like, do you feel that uh, now that we have a new administration, despite the fact that we have Tom Vilsack uh, in the chair again at the uh, USDA, do you feel like any of those um, bullet points in your manifesto uh, may see the light of day in terms of uh, public policy as, you know, in terms of, in terms of the way the USDA shapes agricultural policy?
2: Um. Well, I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm certainly more hopeful than I was a month ago or For than sure. I would be if if the election had gone the other way. Um, and people I'm I'm not a Washington insider by any stretch, but but I do know a couple people. And they've basically said if Biden just does pretty much the kind of stuff that he's talking about doing, we'll see more progress than we have seen in, in 20 or 30 years. And, I, you know, I believe that because the Obama administration had some failures in the realm of, certainly in the realm of food and agriculture. Its focuses were, were elsewhere. Trump is best not discussed, and, and Bush too. So uh, I don't know how far back you have to go to say, well, this was a period we were making real progress in food and agriculture, but I think the... The fact that it's imperative to deal with climate change and that agriculture is such a important player in climate change uh, means that if you start to deal with climate and you start to deal with carbon emissions and sequestration, uh, you have to deal with agriculture. If you start to deal, but but if you start to deal with racial justice, as that Booker Warren bill you were talking about before starts to deal with racial justice, well then you have to deal with agriculture. Also, if you want to start to raise healthier children, you have to deal with agriculture. If you want to have a uh, a more empowered, better treated workforce, especially among women and people of color, then you have to deal with agriculture and food. I mean, no matter where you look, if you want to try to make things better, part of, if not the, the large part of making those things better Involves agriculture and food in almost every single industry. So, um, I think if if the administration's intent is to address injustices, and you know we're we're what not even I think we're a week in actually we're a week right. into this administration as we're taping this. Um, if if that's the administration's intent, then the administration is going to be dealing with agriculture. In a positive way. I don't think Tom Vilsack is a man of vision, particularly, and I don't think he's, a, he's going to be seen as a great secretary of agriculture. But good things can happen. And I think that the job of this administration and the job of all of us for four years is to start to make things better and to show people that things can indeed get better with good leadership and with good uh, grassroots organization pushing that leadership. And that if we can improve both federal and local governments in 2022 and improve them again in 2024, then we may be well on our way to building the kind of society that our rhetoric would lead you to believe that we already have.
1: <laughs> so, your last chapter has a number of references to encouraging movements and incremental changes for the better. Uh, can you give us like a top ten list of things that you see changing um, at the grassroots level, or at the federal level, or the state level, for that matter? Um, you know what? What are what are the things that you see are the most encouraging? Um, Mm, harbingers of, of real societal change.
2: I mean, I, everything from, you know, I'll, I'll mention that Booker Bill again. Any discussion of land reform or reparations, I think, is great. Mm. Uh, the Good Food Purchasing po- Program, which is an organization that makes it so that uh, bulk buyers of food, i.e. cities or uh, school systems, school systems right. right, exactly, have standards to follow this such this so much of it should be local so much of it should be organic the workers who are growing it should be treated this way the pesticides that are used should be limited to this or that whatever it is to say we have sta- standards for the food that we're going to buy the fight for 15 i'm sure you know but probably not everybody does that at least five of the worst of the 10 worst paying jobs in the united states are in the are in the food world so the fight for fifteen, which not coincidentally began among fast food workers, is an important an important part of the movement. And if we and if Biden is serious about passing a federal minimum wage of fifteen dollars, that is a huge, huge victory for huge people who are fighting for good food and people who are fighting for social justice as well. And let me be among the first to point out that 15 is not enough, but it's certainly moving in the right direction. Um, On on local levels, whatever move we have, and this could be federal too, whatever move we have toward improving uh, school lunches, toward improving
1: uh, food education among young people, To upgrading food and food banks and
2: food pantries. I mean, it was, it was, I believe it was the Rhode Island food, food bank, which was the first in the country that refused donations of junk food and said, yes. "and said, we're not here to push non-nutritious food on poor people. We're here to try to help poor people eat better to the extent we can see that kind of movement. Um I don't know. What else? You know the list as well as I do.
1: <laughs> well, one of the things that I, I took, a, I made a note of um, is you have a quote. Uh, I'll quote this, kneecapping big foods, power house marketing machines and changing how and what food is produced. That's another entire conversation. But that to me, <laughs> and maybe you'll come back and we'll have that conversation about big food marketing. But um, but that to me uh, is probably one of the biggest barriers to uh, promoting uh, healthier eating habits in the United States um, and and also uh, one of the biggest uh, culprits in encouraging children to eat bad food. Well, so, I
2: didn't you know I didn't mention that because we're making such pathetic progress on it. And <laughs> in this. It's true that if people say to me, what's the single most important issue, I say limiting the marketing of junk food to children. I don't know that I really believe that, but it's among the most important issues. And we've done a terrible job on that. In the 70s, there was a struggle in Congress and nationally to limit the marketing of junk to children. And it was somewhat successful. And then Ronald Reagan became president, and that basically went out the window. And we've seen no progress on that in 40 years, while countries around the world have gone and made much better food labels than we've made and restricted the right of marketers to attack, literally attack children's health by selling them junk. And, and children don't know the difference between truth and lies, of course. And not only that, it's not just selling to children junk and turning children into potential diabetics, it's also creating generation after generation of adults who struggle with their diet. And you and I and everybody else who's listening to this knows how hard it is to change your diet because your dietary preferences are formed when you're young, really, really young. And if you allow people who are basically hawkers of sugar and junk food to attack children and say, the best food in the world is the food that makes you happy. And the food that makes you happy is the food that Tony, the tiger tells you to eat or whatever. (laughs) Um, This is, you know, this is not only immoral, it should be illegal. So if we can, kneecapping is a good word. If we can kneecap those marketers, we'll be doing our children and our future adults a great service.
1: Yeah. And my other hobby horse is, is, um, is breaking down the monopolies is to you know get rid of the consolidation of the industry, you know, in all of its aspects. Whether it's seeds and chemical inputs, whether it's uh, John Deere and tractor parts, whether it's uh, the meat companies that you know hold people hostage, essentially, uh, the the you know the 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 breakup of these monopolistic um, entities, I think, is probably one of the very first. Uh, tasks that I'd like to see the Biden administration address. And I know Elizabeth Warren has been very strong about that, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, I'm going to give you the last minute or two here to promote yourself and your events shamelessly. <laughs> where <laughs> where will you be appearing? Um, will you be you doing know, on I imagine all online things? But yeah, Zooming day and night. So can people find that on a website? Uh I I would
2: like to say that we will be posting appearances on markbitman.com and I'm going to send an email as soon as we're off um making sure that that does happen but um you know we were we were going to do a Zoom launch party for the book and there was just so much zooming going on anyway it just seemed like superfluous so i I feel like I'm everywhere all the time, and I, I i don't think there's going to be much trouble finding me obviously it's different than than it would have been any other any other year so there's that but um but please visit markbitman dot com and uh sign up for our newsletter, which is now being renamed the bitman project and um it's going to be bigger and better than ever um And yeah, absolutely. Buy animal, vegetable junk for sure.
1: That's right. Thank you so, so much for being on the show today, Mark. I really appreciate it. It's been a joy and a delight. And I'd love to have you back to talk about more of the aspects uh, of, you know, food and agriculture that you bring up in this really very, very interesting book. The title again, folks, in case you missed it, Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. Check it out. Thanks again to my sponsor, and uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in today. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter